This is a podcast from The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Hi, I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this is The Game, the podcast that, if it were a footballer, would score a fantastic goal on debut and then perhaps get sent off next time round. Joining me to discuss another weekend of goals, 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 and some England captaincy controversy, it's Alison Rudd, Matthew Syed, and from beautiful downtown Rippenden, it's Ollie Kay. But we're going to start, no surprises here, at Stamford Bridge. Um, all right, Chelsea versus Manchester United. Uh, Ollie, you were there. Um, I just kind of feel like this has happened before. And, and, and I want to know, is it just the sensation that I get that United makes stunning comebacks and turns turn defeats uh, into draws and uh, draws into victories? Or is there any secret to it that it seems to happen uh, a disproportionate amount of the time? Well, they, they make life difficult for themselves by making poor starts to games at times, but they're never out of the game, are they? I think um, I think somebody was on Twitter saying at 3-0 down that um, United are still going to win that, and you wouldn't really say that of any other team, would you? Uh, the, the, the penalty was, was well, the first penalty was iffy, the second one was um, generous in the extreme, uh, but... I don't think any other team, I don't think you would expect any other team to, to, to force their way back from that situation. It wasn't just the penalties. They were creating chances. They were attacking right from going 3-0 down. They were attacking in the belief that, 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 that they were going to force their way back into the game. And they, they've done it for years. They, they, they're never... Um, they're never beaten. Well, obviously they are beaten sometimes, but but they never believe they're beaten, which is why um, you know there was a, a statistic about them having done this three times from three 0 down in, in the history of the Premier League. It's um, I think um, like nobody other no other team has done it twice, something like that. So they are they they, they do have a, an amazing ability to do that, um, and it's it's all in the head really, it's in the head and heart. Uh, sorry, it's not just coming back from 3-0 down. It's, I mean, they've obviously done this in, in Champions League finals uh, uh, against Aston Villa a couple of years ago. Um, you're generally pretty level-headed about this. Do you believe in some kind of mystical mojo, mind over matter? Or is this just a weird statistical quirk? Oh, that's an interesting question. I guess um, the think tank could run a regression analysis to find out whether or not they actually come back more than you would expect for a team of their ability. Because, of course, because they're one of the best teams in the league, you would expect them to come back more often than the average team. But, uh, I mean, like Ollie, uh, my eyeballs tell me, without having done the mathematics, that they do come back rather more than you would expect. And the general narrative is that they are imbued with tremendous self-belief and that no matter what the score and no matter what the stage of the game, they still think they can do it. Now, it seems to me there's about a bazillion talking points um, here that, and themes that come out of this game. One of them invariably is is the referee. Uh, so let's get this one out of the way quickly. Um, and we'll turn to our qualified referee. Um Ollie earlier described uh, um, the first penalty as iffy, uh, first penalty for United uh, as iffy, the second one as generous to the extreme. Um, you going to stand up for your boy, Howard Webb? The, well, the first penalty, I, d- I don't know why Ollie are calling it iffy. It, it was a penalty. I mean, it wasn't a defender who gave it away and it was clumsy, but it was a penalty. Um, and the second one, 
I, I think I may just have mentioned this before, but I don't think you can blame the referee if, if a player is 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 cute about it. I I, I felt that um, that Welbeck made sure it looked like a penalty, and you only get one go at it. Player falls over, looks like a penalty. I, I don't I don't think you can have too big a, a row with Howard Webb. Uh, it's very difficult if you're duped in that way. Well, I mean, the, the second one, I, I'm not saying I, I would blame the referee. I'm not saying that that, that, that he's a. Uh, a disgrace for not spotting that, that, that he'd been conned, but, but he was conned and it, it shouldn't have been a penalty. That, that, that's all I'm saying. The, uh, Welbeck stuck his leg out, sort of extended his leg to, to, to make sure it uh, somehow um, wrapped around um, Ivanovic's, which was probably about a foot away from the ball, and, um, and threw himself to the ground. It's much like Adam Johnson the previous night. But why don't you think the first one was a clear penalty? Well, if he, if he, if he, it was, you know, sometimes they they wouldn't get given it. It's like you're defending the referee for 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 giving the second one, and I'm saying that a referee would be forgiven for not giving that one because it wasn't it wasn't the clearest of fouls. It was it was it was a foul probably uh, in most people's eyes, but it, it was it wasn't as blatant a foul um, as the Gary Cahill one, which was just on the edge of the penalty in the first half. I think it was. I'm, I'm a not not as big a fan of Howard Webb as you are, but I'm not as big a critic either. But I, I don't think that was his best day. Syed, um Welbeck. Uh, we mentioned uh, Adam Johnson in, in the City game. Um, has it yeah. always been around to some degree that this level of uh, cleverness? Well, I, I'm sure it has been around for a long time. Wasn't there a famous clip of, I, I might have this completely wrong, but Mickey Thomas falling down and then winking at somebody as he got up about 25, 30, maybe 35 years ago? I'm sure that the desire to hoodwink the referee is a consistent theme of football down the ages, but the number of cameras, of course, and the scrutiny that's provided by modern technology means that these are more easily seen after the event. I don't think it was a penalty. Um, I think more and more that these talking points are part and parcel of football's appeal, so I don't think it's a disastrous thing. But I do think when players are very clearly out to hoodwink a referee and it can be spotted after the event, there should be some kind of punishment applied. Some kind of uh, re- retrospective punishment, you mean? Some kind of retrospective yeah. punishment. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. David De Gea uh, has obviously had his critics this season. He's been in out on the side. Um, is this the point where people eat humble pie about him, or did we just kind of learn that what we already knew, that he's obviously a very gifted goalkeeper who can pull off incredible saves, like the like that save from uh, um, from Mata, um, but who's still developing? There'll be no there'll be no humble pieing because I, uh, as you just said, Gav, I think you know, everyone knew when he was signed that he he has uh, a really impressive talent and. People, what people doubted was how old he was and how mature he was and his authority over his defence. You don't suddenly acquire those things over a few weeks anyway. Uh, and what Ferguson has to do is to decide whether the, on the balance does having someone who has um, such audacious skills and they, those two late saves uh, were, were, you know, they'll, they'd make a DVD of top goalkeeping saves of, of the decade. They were, they were superb. He put it... He's not going to suddenly become more mature and more able to uh, command his area, and that that that's something that will grow. And Ferguson has to just decide whether he can 
accelerate it slightly by picking him more regularly and not undermining him by leaving him out and him gaining experience from being there through uh, big games such as this. Ferguson said after the game that um, in three or four years, De Gea is going to be among the best in the world. It's too easy to point out that if you've made him the joint second most expensive goalkeeper of all time, you kind of expect him to be among the best of the world right here and now and that Ferguson himself might not be around to reap the benefits in three or four years' time. Yeah, but I, I remember we we said that of, uh, of Cristiano Ronaldo that, that Ferguson wouldn't be there when um, Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> finally grew up, and not only did he um, do that, but, but he's um, you know Ronaldo was World Player of the Year, and then um, and Ferguson's still there four years later. Um, De Gea, I, mean, I, I don't know, if people, every, I don't know if people would have read the column I wrote on Saturday, but I, I found a quote from Ferguson from four years ago when he was talking about Van der Sar, saying that. We went through a little bit of a thing after losing Schmeichel and, and what we came to realise is that what you need to be a Manchester United goalkeeper is experience and personality. Uh, that was describing the Van der Zaar, um success. And um, it just seems to me that the hair is, is brilliantly talented, but he has everything except experience and personality. It seems like it's the kind of goalkeeper that um, he would have gone for in 2003 when he was looking at Tim Howard, etc. I, I think the Hale will continue to make mistakes. Um, and it's a case of whether, in the course of making those mistakes, in the course of growing up, he's, he's going to come through that undamaged and become the great goalkeeper that he has the potential to be. Uh, Syed, uh, backdrop here, and I know we're mentioning him every week, but um, it kind of leaves us no choice, is um, is a special one, uh, Jose Mourinho. Um, I mean, I think you know, those of us who cover the game know which of our colleagues he speaks to regularly and which ones you know, he often sends messages through. Uh, so last week it was a report in the Sunday Times that he was definitely leaving. Um, now we get on, on Friday, uh, we get a report in a different newspaper that um, he wants to come to Chelsea, uh, but only if he has complete control of the club, I guess short of ownership. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that he's going to be linked to um, all the other top six clubs. He's been linked with Tottenham already. Um, and and I think that at some point somebody's going to write that they're offering some sort of Mendes, Mourinho, Ronaldo super package where for half a billion pounds you can get the three of them plus Di Maria and and Pepe and and, the whole stable Um, this kind of thing I mean as a strategy it's it's, it's pretty kind of makes sense you're in a job you want more power you sort of wink at uh, other employers um, is this what's going on? What do you make of it um, as an approach? And is this just part of the game? And those ma- those incumbent managers who have jobs and contracts right now just need to deal with it? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I agree with you that Mourinho is very Machiavellian in the way he approaches his job and his potential future roles. He's very clever at manipulating the media at keeping his name in the spotlight in whichever nation he thinks might be the next one that he will manage in. And he's a fascinating character for all sorts of different reasons. Most notable, I mean, obviously, he's a very good football manager, a great tactician, uh, a terrific man, motivator. He's somebody who the players coalesce around, and that seems to have been the case in pretty much every club he's managed. 
I rather wonder that's, if that's because of a remarkable streak of narcissism that he has. He seems to inspire a level of loyalty in his players, which is fascinating to, to watch. Where he goes from here, I, I really don't know. I, I suspect, like you do, that he's putting out the feelers through his chosen journalists and trying to keep the uh, owners around the world with lots and lots of money uh, tempted by the potential uh, luring him into their clubs. And I don't doubt wherever he goes, he will be the highest paid manager in the world. Very good timing, though, that these reports that he, he's actually considering return to Chelsea as opposed to going to another Premier League club. In that this weekend, uh, Villas Boas looked every inch a non-Mourinho figure. He he stumbled through the post-match. He he was really shaken by what happened to his team, and you sort of get the impression under Mourinho that would never have happened. Under Mourinho, we might have seen a different kind of reaction, or that let's say a bit a more positive one. Uh, Ali, I want to get you on this because since uh, since the, these most recent developments, um, we, we we've been deprived of of your wisdom. I mean that. Um, I've got to say, I don't really see um, a great deal of opportunities for, for Mourinho. He might be flushing his eyelashes, but if I were him, um, I would be thinking I'm at arguably the biggest club in the world. Why don't I? do everything to make a success of that rather than um, spending my time fluttering my eyelashes at um, clubs in England. And that's maybe why he's him and I'm me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, fluttering eyelashes provides the uh, perfect transition um, to the Emirates uh, and Arsenal. Now, I was on a, a I was on TV with with Robbie Earl recent, uh, well yesterday actually, and he made a point which I thought was very very clever. Since um, Tuesday is the the 200th anniversary of Charles Dickens' birth, I thought he came up with this wonderful Dickensian uh, uh, phrase about how against Blackburn we saw Arsenal past in the shape of Thierry Henry, Arsenal present in, in Robin van Persie, and Arsenal future in Alec Oxlade Chamberlain. Um, but I'm kind of disappointed because. Alison, I've been told that lots of people have used this phrase (laughs) (laughs) and Robbie wasn't necessarily being very clever. He might have coined it, but um, it's kind of been done. Yeah, well, a a true originality isn't in being the first to say something. It's in thinking of it for yourself and he may have thought of it himself, but it's... uh it was irresistible, wasn't it, because of the nature of where the goals came from and, and the performances on the pitch. Um, shall we talk about them? Who do you want to talk about first? Oxlade-Chamberlain, because well, he's well, astonishing. Well, that's what He I makes I, I people mean, smile. You know, you know how Arsenal are everybody's... Not everybody's, but a lot of people, they're their second club. They're the club they have a soft spot for. They're the club that made them feel good when their own club were being a bit dull or not winning enough or whatever. And the gloss has gone off that in recent seasons as Arsenal have failed to buy and failed to win anything. And then suddenly you get someone like Oxlade Chamberlain who had a little bit of hype but not a lot. Um, And I think because Walcott has not gone on to be the great player we all thought he might be, uh, although he's not bad, Walcott. Um, there, there was doubt that another Southampton boy would, would, would set the world on fire, and so people were scared about saying he's going to be marvellous. And he is marvellous. He's fantastic. I mean, he brings a smile to your face. He's, and Wenger had it right. He just said, you know, he just, he's just got it in him. He wants to play. He's just a natural talent, and he could play anywhere. And I was surprised on the TV commentary that I heard the analysis kept calling him a, a, a natural winger. Um, I mean, I think it's quite clear he could play anywhere and let's, let, let him go to the European Championships go for it he's fantastic 
Ollie. Is Allison laying on a little bit sick when it comes to uh, AOC? And uh, does he deserve, I mean, are we putting undue pressure on him to, to mention that, you know, he should be even in the same breath as uh, Henri and uh, Van Persie? Well, to, to be mentioned in the same breath as Henri and Van Persie, yeah, I think that's a, that's a bit of a leap um, at the moment. But I think to, to mention him in England, I don't think that's out of question because that's mentioning him in the same breath as Lennon, Walcott, Downing and Young. Um which I don't think is quite That's so daunting, mean. is it? That's really um, mean. You're a mean one, Mr. K. It's, I'm just saying it's more realistic than comparing him to Henri and Van Persie, who are sort of gods of the modern game. And I, I think, you know, Ashley Young started the season very well at, at Manchester United, but he's not done a great deal since, partly due to injuries. Stuart Downey, I don't think, is, I think he's set up one goal and... Scored another, no, scored one in uh, in the FA Cup in, in his um, in his half season at Liverpool. So Oxley Chamberlain seems to have something different. He seems to, I mean, he's got a directness about him, but it's not all straight lines. He, he's he's unpredictable. He's versatile. He's got a brain that can operate at the same side, at the same speed as his feet, which is which takes some doing. And I, I think he's got great potential. I, I would, if I was if I was Capello, I would certainly be thinking of him. Um, I wouldn't necessarily build my team around him or anything like that. Yeah, but, but didn't I, he, Ollie? Didn't he make you smile? Are you not? Do you have to be slightly cynical? Do you do you not see players and just enjoy them and think, wow, where did he come from? Come on, didn't he fill your heart with joy? Yeah, of course he did. It was, it was a great, it was a great performance. But, um, but um, I, can you feel the joy in Ollie's yeah. voice? <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, I mean, I, 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 he filled me. He filled, Ali, I, I know where you're. I, I'm with you 100 percent on that. There is, there is something rather magnificent and wonderful and magical when you see a young player with confidence and with skill and with ability and with vision and with uh, fast-working brain. And uh, Arsenal have always been an extremely attractive, beautiful, poetic team to watch. And he is very much in the in the mould of, uh, of great Arsene Wenger players of, of the past. Uh, he's obviously not good enough yet to be, or hasn't done enough to be compared with Henri and Van Persie. But yes, he, he, he does put a smile on the face. I know where you're coming from. All right, I, I sense a disconnect here between the uh, um, the happy romantics from from West London inside an alley <laughs> and the grumpy uh, an- football anoraks who were up all night like myself and uh, and, and Ollie. Um, but Syed, I want to get your take. I mean, you've written a lot about Wenger in the past, I, and it seems to me that this season has followed a very familiar pattern. Um, we've had massive doom and gloom. Wenger's lost it. Um, you know, Stan Kroenke is his punishment from God. Um, and then they go on a good run, and, and we're like, oh, yes, let's all eat humble pie. Wenger's back, and Arsenal are back. And then and then they go on a tailspin again, and it's all rubbish, and now it's like it's all good again. Um, is, is this just like it's just like, so it seems to me it's like it's a weird cycle all compressed in one season where we can't really figure out whether Wenger's actually doing a good job this season or whether he's made some colossal mistakes and it's kind of papering over the cracks by sort of beating up on, on, on an awful Blackburn side who are owned by Venkies. Yes, but is that not just true of uh, football in general? The, the narrative 
follows the results, not the other way around, and that the narrative shifts with every single result that happens. It's calamity, genius, calamity, genius, calamity, genius. We don't tend to take a step back and look at the arc um, from a slightly more rational perspective. I mean, it's part of the joy of football, of course, but it's also uh, something that must frustrate people like Arsene Wenger all the time because it, 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 there is a gyration in the way that he is viewed. Well, I think that the probably the sensible view is that he's been a, a terrific and rather brilliant manager and um, you know but of course as in any football team you have good results and then you, then you have bad ones. Blackburn got a couple good results and all these people are coming out saying aha look he ha- Steve Keane hasn't lost the dressing room the players are all united behind him and I've gone on rants about this saying how demented that was because it kind of assumes that if the players don't like the manager then they'll just go out and happily lose games because they don't care about the fans or they don't care about whether they get relegated or they have no professional team spirit or, or pride or whatever. Um, but what's your take on Blackburn? I mean, is this game just to write off and it's not matches like this that are going to make a difference in whether they stay up or not? Well, I, I don't think losing 7-1 is, is ever a good thing. I think um, it, it's the kind of scoreline and the kind of performance that has a knock-on effect quite often. Um, but the, the, the interesting thing with Blackburn is that, is that the players are generally, um, the players are generally, from my knowledge of the situation, fairly supportive of, of Keane. They don't want him sacked. They don't. They they feel that, you know, privately as well as publicly, they feel that they, the, that he deserves a bit of slack and shouldn't be um, shouldn't be the demon in all this. I think they they have big reservations about the owners uh, and the way that, that the club is going. But it, it's it's a fairly young team now. If you look at the squad. For from a year ago, it's fairly young, uh, and I guess there will be days like that when they collapse, um, as they did on Saturday, especially having had Jive sent off. Um, let's be honest about this. They are going to be in the bottom five or six teams at the end of the season. It's hard to say whether they will survive. Uh, you can't say that with any certainty at all. They're going to be struggling, um, no doubt about that. Um, Keane's got some clueless fool that doesn't know what he's doing but he's, he doesn't have the ability to get results and, and improve fortunes that someone like Sam Allardyce had before him and uh, you know, it's, it's a question of the direction that the team's going in isn't it it's, it's previously they, they seem to be a, an ugly uh, surviving mid-table team and, and now they're a, a young um struggling flaky team and, and I think if they're a young flaky team that goes down I don't think that will look terribly good on Keen CV Do you know Ollie why, what the point of refusing Christopher Samba's transfer request is and then not playing him what's the uh, from what I'm told that came from right at the top it came from Venkis who, who were so um, angered by Chris Samba's um, stance uh, at uh, A demanding a transfer and B um, sort of raising doubts about his his ability or fitness to play in a certain game um, they felt that this was some point of principle that they were fighting for and, and that they were doing a terribly good thing on behalf of Blackburn Rovers and football as a whole by um, by uh, chucking him in with, with, with the reserves and, and, and not picking him um, so that's a, that's a, a fairly curious situation it's astonishing um, <laughs> well it is I mean he is he is one of the best players, uh, certainly one of the most influential players, and 
I think they need to get him onside because if they don't, if they're left in it with a sort of Tevez type situation where he's hanging around the place, not being allowed to, to, to play, that's going to turn the mood very sour. And, and the mood around the training ground has probably been one of the few things that um, has, has not been entirely discouraging this season. So I've just been handed a note by Chris, our producer. It contains a joke, uh, and it says, um, Venkis also don't want to sell Samba for a paltry amount of money. Ba-boom. Very good, Chris. <laughs> hey, who's psyched for some debate? We're going to talk the England captain's armband, the leader of the nation, the leader of men. Um, all right, bit of background to this. I'm assuming since y'all haven't been living under a rock, uh, you know what came before this. Um, but the latest developments are uh, Sunday night. Um, Fabio Capello went on this uh, in this interview show, which is sort of one of those quirky ideas that the TV people like. It's like the five minute interview. Um, I think we used to do a 60 second interview in the game, in the Times, didn't we, Allison? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, no, th- this was different. This is the more expanded five minute interview, where Capello just kind of appears by camera link from London. They ask him about a bazillion questions to do with Italian football and and the like, and then. Four minutes and 30 seconds in, um, so when the interview is almost over, they asked about John Terry being stripped for the captaincy and whether he agreed with the decision. I'll go so far as to hypothesize that they wouldn't have even asked him about that because, frankly, nobody really cares uh, whether John Terry is a little strip um, on his bicep uh, outside the scepter dial. Um, so I would assume that he, they were urged to ask that question, possibly by Capello's camp. And he comes out and he says, um, and I just want to get this right because I, there was a very bad translation of it, which I think depicted him in a slightly different light. He basically uh, came out and he said, um, absolutely not. Um, and he says, and he told the chairman that uh, uh, he felt that uh, that John Terry needed to be judged first by uh, by civil justice, by, by the CPS. Of course, he's been charged uh, with a public order offense. Um, and, and only then could you go and take the captaincy away or take action against him because you're innocent until proven guilty. Um, he said that that was and remains his opinion that he should not have been stripped of the armband um, but he also says that it's not a decision for him to make because it's a, it's an ethical question and uh, it's not part of his remit but it's down to the FA's board. Now this is a bit different from some of the headlines you might have seen about uh, John Terry will always be my captain and, and, and all this jazz but I think we can agree that Fabio Capello wanted to send a message there. Yeah, he did. And um, I mean, I'm glad that you sort of uh, reinforced my theory that maybe um, his camp had um, encouraged the interviewer to um, probe on that particular issue rather than probably, probably about Milan or Juventus, etc. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he is angry or unhappy. We knew that at the time and we had a conversation about it on Friday and, and you know, that was, that was sort of widely reported on in, in Saturday's papers that he was um, that, that he was unhappy, but I, I don't think it was entirely expected, certainly not by the FA, that he would that he would go on this uh, program and um, make clear his unhappiness and make clear his belief about what should have happened. Uh, um, Side, I want to get you on this. If you can just help me work through the the ethical argument here, which I think is also Capello's argument, if. 
I mean, there's a concept of obviously innocent until proven guilty. Uh, there are situations where somebody might be suspended pending trial. People have made that case. But I think Capello feels if you make that case, then you go and you say John Terry isn't fit to play for England pending appeal because these charges are so serious. Um, so you kind of either make the decision to drop him altogether or you leave him in the team and you don't mess around with who wears the captain's armband. Is that a yeah. crazy opinion from, from Capello? No, I don't think it's a crazy opinion. I, I think it's a very admirable stance to really uh, focus on that very important legal precept of the presumption of innocence. Uh, I, I just think that you can, as you rightly said, there is an alternative view, and we saw it, for example, in Chris Hune, who the Liberal Democrat uh, Environment Secretary of State, who resigned pending his uh, case, which is coming before the courts on whether his wife took some points on his um, uh, when he was uh, allegedly driving a car and, and was caught for speeding. He actually remains as a member of parliament, mind you. So I think it, it, it is a very difficult and an extremely fine judgment. In this particular case, I think that the FA got it right to strip Terry of the, uh, of the captaincy, but I think they should have followed through on the logic and decided not to select him for the England team at all until the case comes before the magistrate, which it will do after the European Championship final. But as I say, I think it is a quite a delicate judgment to make. I don't think one can have a catch-all rule for these things. I think that it needs to be taken on a case-by-case basis and taking into account all the circumstances. It's a very serious charge of, of racism. Uh, there's obviously players in the team, black and white, who would have a major issue with that, who will have a view on the evidence that uh, has been compiled. Uh, I just think that it would have been sensible for, for England and maybe even for Terry for him to focus on the, the trial without having uh, having the uh, European Championships at all as captain or otherwise. If I'm not mistaken, Chris Hume's logic for not resigning um, as, an, uh, as a member of parliament is also that he was voted in, so he was given a mandate and he's got a responsibility to his um, to to the people who elected him. Whereas, you know, is it, it, obviously his, his cabinet status is a bit is a bit different because he was appointed there. But so, would you have been okay though if the FA had had taken the presumption of of innocence line till the very end and said, "Look, we're very sorry, um, but we're going to embrace that." I mean, is this basically a fudge? The reason I say it's something that should be taken on a case-by-case basis is there are obvious examples in a work context where a serious allegation may have been placed against a member of a particular group of workers, a very serious one, which would have made it almost impossible for the colleagues to work with this person while the judicial process is underway. Terry's been charged, which means the CPS or the prosecuting authorities think there's sufficient evidence to have a good chance of proving his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a very high threshold. It's not the same one that was being applied to Suarez. Um, I just think it should be done on a case-by-case basis. I think it would have been uh, it would have been a credible position of the FA to say we're going to keep him in the in the team. I just think it would have been the wrong one, if you see what I mean. I think it, I don't think it's an absolutely obvious decision, but I think the FA uh, have, have got it wrong. Alison, is this a big fudge sandwich? No, I don't think so. First of all, we must stop using the word stripped of captaincies. I think that's pejorative and prejudicial. And I think maybe partly why um, Capello said what he said, because it 
it has the ring of judgment about it. If you strip someone of something, you're implying that you think they are guilty of something, and that's not what's happening at all. All the FA are doing is saying it. It. it it's almost an. Imp- it's an impos- it's an impossibility for England to be captained by someone who will be uh, going to trial a matter of days after the final of the European Championships and it's just not workable. It would dominate every press conference. Um, Personally, I also think how on earth can you risk how on earth can you risk John Terry holding I mean I doubt England will win it but what if they did and he held the trophy aloft and then a few days later he's convicted of the crime. He, he, He denies it but what if he's convicted of it? The only beautiful moment in English football will be completely soiled forever I mean you have to you have to sort of play these things out and, 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 and make a judgement call and it's, I know what you mean by the word fudge because you're sort of saying we don't want that to happen we don't want to see John Terry holding up a trophy well, we and representing in, but, but we don't but we, but we can't we, we go, if we go too far then maybe we're just going too far in terms of the, the presumption of innocence before we have to we have to feel the other direction what if they said you know because look it, it, sorry if England if, if Terry, to, to follow your logic if Terry Terry's there and he's playing, right? Um, he may not be the first guy to hold it aloft, but I've seen those pictures of 1966 when you guys won your one single solitary World Cup. Um, there's other people in the picture apart from Bobby Moore, right? So what happened? Like Stevie G's lifting the trophy and like John Terry standing next to him, embracing him. What if John Terry's standing there embracing Theo Walcott lifting the trophy, right? Um, and then it turns out that he is found guilty. Um, won't you still have the problem using your logic? Yeah, you do, and I, I, I that's why it does sound like a fudge. But I think, I think, uh, so at this point in time, when it had just come out when the trial date would be, the, I mean, it, this doesn't preclude. I mean, they, the, the FA know a lot. A lot is going to happen between now, between now, and when we get to the Ukraine. This is the first step. This is the first step. It, it, it kills all the debate about who should be England captain. I, well, I feel <laughs> I feel I feel it might right. it might progress uh, it might progress Ollie um, one thing I don't understand and maybe you can elucidate I don't know if anybody's thought to ask, ask the FA this I'm, I'm sure people have and the FA don't simply don't answer and if they have maybe you can tell me but um, I actually counted the days it took the FA 58 days to reach a, um, a verdict in the Suarez Evra case, um, and that involved a lot of witnesses, uh, language experts, cultural uh, experts, university professors, all this jazz. Um, they had 59 days in which to reach a verdict on John Terry, which, as I see it, since. I don't think there's any dispute that whatever he said, he said and, and was speaking English and there were witnesses around him. Um, how on God's green earth is it possible that they couldn't come up with a verdict before the charge came? Or did they maybe not want to? They, uh, they were advised against doing so. They were advised against uh, invest- launching their own in uh, investigation at the same time that uh, a police investigation and then a CPS investigation were going on. That is generally the legal advice that governing bodies, sporting governing bodies, are given in those situations. Wait, but, wait, wait, but he, so, wasn't even, he wasn't even charged until 59 days later. I mean, no, what, what, no, how did they know he was going to be charged? Well, it was, it was in the hands of police within 24 hours or 36 hours or, or whatever it was. Uh, from that point, well... From the point where the police started getting very serious about it, they informed the FA that that, um, that they were very much proceeding with their inquiries, and the FA in that situation are basically um, painted a picture where 
they're, they're told that it, it's not very clever of them to launch their own investigation and, and, and try to investigate it separately at the same time. Um, that is, I mean, there are, there have been instances, for example, with the ICC, which obviously is an international body where, where, where they've done something similar uh, with, the, with the spot fixing scandal. But um, the FA's legal advice was not to get involved in this until, um, uh, well, while the, um, while the, criminal investigation as it has become um, was going on so they they felt that this was going to be resolved uh, long before the European Championships and they felt it wasn't going to be an issue which um, obviously the adjournment last Wednesday um, changed all that Sai, did this, if, if, I mean, for all he's saying, or based on what all he's saying, I can only conclude that once again, um, expensive lawyers have their head up uh, where the sun doesn't shine, and I don't like lawyers to begin with, and I should declare my, my bias here. Not all of them, some of them are good, most of them are very, very bad people, or they're incompetent <laughs> or stupid, but... Can you just explain this to me, um, whether whether you, you, you buy this argument, can you just tell me... If it's a different charge, because one is a public order offense, the other one yeah. in, in the field of sporting justice is, is very—it's very clear what the charge is. Um, there's different standards of evidence, and there's also a different plaintiff um, or, or a different complainant uh, as well in the two cases. Yeah. Um, should the FA have said, you know what? You do your investigation, we do our investigation. Our investigation is different, and if you feel so strongly that we're prejudicing things, then you know, send us a letter from a judge, and we'll and we'll back down. Um, uh, uh, interesting question. I, I hear what Ollie's saying about a governing body with a quasi-judicial uh, remit to try and investigate a very slightly different charge and a very different uh, burden of proof. That's a very significant difference between what would have happened had the FA charged and investigated Terry compared with the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, uh, to be honest, I've not got a particularly strong view on that. I do have a very strong view on the court deciding to adjourn until, is it July the 9th. I mean, what on earth is that all about? The legal process should supersede whether or not a player will miss a blinking training session for Chelsea or whether other players who are going to be called as character witnesses. Apparently, this is what they were saying. I mean, who on earth is going to testify as a character witness to Terry? I don't know. Uh, but why the courts are unable to go through the process of establishing Terry's innocence or guilt and having players have to miss training sessions, why, why the training sessions come before court appearances is absolutely extraordinary to me. And I have no understanding whatsoever of why, first of all, Chelsea asked for the adjournment. Presumably they're hoping by delaying it, Terry will be able to keep the captaincy. I don't know. But why on earth the judicial authorities agreed to it is, is completely bewildering to me. I'm not allowed to vote in this country, but if Syed wants to run for emperor and uh, uh, reform the court system and the judiciary system, um, I would certainly back him. Right, time now for some quick hits. Manchester City wanted to make a statement after their midweek defeat at Everton, and they beat Fulham 3-0 in a driving snowstorm. Ollie, was that enough of a statement for you? Well, it's going back to what Matthew said a couple of uh, you know earlier. It's it's about judging people by the last result. That was a, that was a very good, competent, convincing win. But um, City's problem in in recent well, last couple of months really has been their away form in the Premier League. They, they've struggled to score goals away from home. They've struggled to keep clean sheets, and it's um, that 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 is going to be the the test of Aston Villa on Sunday. Um, if they get a, a good result there, then um, yeah, I, I think. We can say they're um, 
on the mend after a, a, a very slight blip. Newcastle win again and remain in the hunt for fourth place. And yes, we're talking about them, even though George Calkin isn't with us. Um, Alison, we've praised them to the hill already, and I think rightly so. Uh, for those who haven't noticed, uh, uh, that was a midfield of Guthrie, Perch, and, and Ryan Taylor out there. Um, but let's focus on Mr. Papi Cisse. It's a limited sample size, granted, but after that goal, are you ready to anoint him as the next great Newcastle number nine, following in the footsteps of uh, Shear, Malcolm McDonald, Jackie Milburn, uh, and of course, uh, Andy Carroll? Yeah, well, Newcastle are not the only club that have uh, lauded their central strikers uh, over the, the decades. Um, but anyway, um, it was a, uh, a, a limited. Uh, um, um, uh, it was limited what we saw, but I thought I thought uh, initially I thought he looked like a poet, and he looked like he might be a bit distracted. And um, I don't know why I thought that. I just thought he didn't look it, but he was fantastic, and uh, I loved the way he struck the ball across his laces for the goal. It was very beautiful, and uh, yeah, if I was a Newcastle fan, I'd be very pleased indeed. I love it. Not many uh, international centre forwards uh, read and write poetry in their spare time. Joey Barton reportedly risked contempt of court charges for tweeting about the John Terry case. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what he tweeted, so I won't say it. Oh, no. Ooh, the courts are going to get me. Uh, Syed, uh, uh, you're, for the purpose of this podcast, our legal correspondent. Um, Barton (laughs) dares the authorities to make him a martyr and says he's willing to go to prison. Do you think he'll end up a political prisoner? And... Is this a good way to take on legislation that many of us, or at least me, uh, considers uh, unfair? Uh, well, if you mean the legislation that people are not allowed to say what they think about an ongoing uh, criminal investigation or investigation is unfair, I agree with you. Yes. You won't end up as a political prisoner because they don't tend to think that magistrates can be corrupted by what they read in the media. It, they think that jury juries are capable of being manipulated by what they read in the media, which I think is an insult to anybody who becomes a juror. Magistrates are special. Jurors are stupid sheep. That's exactly what the implication is, and it's and it's insulting. Gab, one for you. It will be Zambia versus Ghana and Mali versus Ivory Coast in the Africa Cup of Nations. Does this mean we'll get the blockbuster Ghana v Ivory Coast final we were all expecting in the first place? Uh, it certainly looks that way. I mean, Ghana made hard work of it against uh, Tunisia in their uh, semi-final. They, they, the Tunisians took them into extra time. They won 2-1. Uh, a lot of us agree that Ghana and Ivory Coast were the two best teams along with Senegal, but uh, Senegal imploded, and uh, we all sort of expected Ivory Coast to implode as well because they generally do. That hasn't happened. Um, I don't see how Mali are going to beat Ivory Coast unless Ivory Coast self-destruct, and uh, I think Ghana should have uh, shouldn't have too much trouble brushing aside the Zambians. That's all we've uh, got time for this week on this uh, rather uh, heavily legal game podcast. Uh, Remember, you can go to www.thetimes.co.uk. You'll find your news, your gossip, your analysis. And remember, you can always follow us on Twitter. And you can also follow uh, our producer, Chris Skinner. He is at Producer Chris. Till next week, bye-bye.